Hello and welcome to District Connect, a podcast by IHEB where we cover a wide range of topics covering the intersection of technology and innovation in the African continent. Join us as we chat with founders, innovators, experts and industry players for some of their key insights and personal experiences in entrepreneurship and innovation from different startup ecosystems across the continent. Today, I'm joined by Craig Hansman, co-founder and CEO of Arifu. He'll tell us a bit more about his startup, how he and his team are working to change the face of education in the African continent, and his experience in the MasterCard Foundation at Tech Fellowship Program. We hope you enjoyed this, this facilitating conversation. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for having me on. Uh, my name is Craig Heinzman. I'm the CEO and co-founder for Arifu. Arifu is an edtech company that makes it easy for any organization to be delivering highly effective interactive training through mobile phones to any audience. Uh, we in particular focus on supporting adults to learn the kinds of skills that can help them build their income, build their, uh, and secure their livelihoods. And um, so far, I've been working across 11 countries uh, in Africa. So we've heard a bit about Arifu and the, what, the work that you guys do, but I'm sure our audience of startup founders or um, startup enthusiasts uh, would be curious to know what actually kind of like sparked the, um, you know, um, the idea behind Arifu? Um, what led up to, you know, you, you know, coming together? Uh, how did you meet your co-founder? So um, could you just give us a bit of a background in terms of like how that, um, you know, came together? Right. So <clears throat> uh, after a university where I studied business and philosophy, uh, I was, you know, I just, I had a, a I don't know, uh, my my inner child was saying that it was it was time to venture out and try to start a business. It was just something that was kind of calling to me, and I wanted to test myself to see if I could pull it off. Basically, um, I had an opportunity to start working with a group of researchers at MIT who were trying to start an NGO, and they needed a business person at a junior level who could support them in forming an, an NGO. Uh, this uh, was uh, is an NGO that's around today called the World Wide Web Foundation. And it was a fantastic experience. I worked with them for three years to try to build up that uh, NGO. Um, and in the process, gained a lot of uh, experience about you know, how do you put together an organization? Um, I was also uh, given a chance to work with some really inspiring people, Iqbal Kadir, Tim Berners-Lee, um, folks that just were out there and have made such a difference globally in the world um, and were, were pioneers in thinking about how do we as a collective society make use of mobile and web technologies in ways that uh, are going to solve really fundamental human needs and problems. Uh, so that was, you know, kind of my baseline. In fact, the, the hair on my arm stands up when I say that just kind of I get a real charge from thinking about how inspirational those those people were and their their ideas. Um, with that, you know, I um, I knew I needed to get a little bit closer into the markets where I was seeing a lot of opportunity uh, to build products and businesses uh, where there was growth, where there was also um, a chance to be able to to put technology into deploying uh, around uh, these uh, you know, kind of big problems. Uh, there was a family that um, I had gotten to know and been friends with in Zimbabwe that had just found a way to manage through the collapse of their currency in 2009. You know, the Zimbabwean dollar hyperinflated to the point of uh, having no value. That was an unimaginably impossible time for for anybody to find their way through, um, you know, uh, putting food on the table. Uh, and so this family. Uh, like so many, needed to start a small business. Uh, they were looking for support and how to do that and reached out. And it really at that time, I knew that um, supporting my friend to see if I could help uh, them to get this small business up and running was something that would be meaningful, uh, but also um, I would learn a ton. Uh, so really uh, the genesis of Arifu was 
um, I didn't know it at the time, but it was moving to Zimbabwe and living there between there and, Zim and Zambia, uh, most of which was living with this family um, and just kind of going day to day through how do you start a micro business when you know, you don't have access to markets, you don't have access to financing, you don't have access to information um, sufficient to really know that you're going to be successful. Uh, and I just learned so much. Uh, it was a very humbling experience. Uh, and out of that, I could see, you know, the, the, the passion and the drive by so many people to just find a way to make it work. If you can't get a job, you're going to create a job and that's how it's going to go. And you just get to work doing it. And I, I just uh, drew a huge amount of inspiration um, Similarly, I, I then could really see concretely, okay, that's the power of mobile. It is about bringing proximity to every individual to overcome those access gaps to information, to knowledge, to markets, to capital. So that was the initial lens and, and I guess um, insight that then led to you know the concrete idea of, of Arifu as a company and as a product. Uh, I didn't have a co-founder at the time, um, but you know, uh, around then, everybody was basically saying, that's a slight overstatement, but everybody was saying, you know, oh, you want to start a mobile tech company, you better go to Nairobi. That's that's where things are happening. Uh, so I, I took their advice, moved up here. And actually, uh, iHub and MLAP were instrumental in my decision to move here because I, I needed engineers to join my cause. One of my major failings in life is I didn't learn how to code as a young person or as an old person. Uh, and I found some incredible engineering talent that was, you know, hacking away day to day at MLab at iHub. Uh, and I met with a group um, who subsequently went on to create uh, MobyDev. Uh, and they, you probably know all of these yes, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I, met, I just remember sitting with them, you know, Moses, Leo, and so on. And, and, um, and their ideas were so good. Uh, They're like, Craig, you know, okay, this idea you have for a product is, is okay. Um, but actually this other idea you have, it's just not going to work in the market. Um, and here's what we think you need to do. And I just, that was exactly the dynamic I was looking for. Um, I tried to get them to join the company. They're like, oh, no, thanks. We're trying to build our own thing. But um, th they did help uh, get to that point where Arifu had a real product that was on the market in a proof of concept. You know, we got a partner, we got uh, a story to tell, we got some feedback and some market fit. Uh, and that was enough traction to start to really build something. Because with that traction and that story, you can then more easily go to potential customers, to potential investors, and to potential co-founders and team members and say, you know, this isn't just a pure idea. This is something that's real. I'm super committed to this. Uh, we've got a story to tell, and we've got some positive um, feedback and results. And so that was, um, I guess, the, the kind of main way that it ultimately came together um, to your question about co-founder. Um, I think, you know, at the time I was a bit younger, I was probably still in my 20s. And so I was partying a fair bit. And through partying, you meet people and those friendships um, brought in your networks. Uh, so that um, uh, when you're not at the club, and you're sort of back at the laptop, uh, you now have an expanded network, which was important for me, because I didn't know anybody when I moved to Nairobi. Mm -hmm. um, and through that, I met Marissa, who was just the perfect co founder, because she had graduated the Harvard uh, education program, the master's um, Program for Education, Hugsy, and uh, you know, had spent years, you know, uh, uh, in in Mali and Guinea delivering training with villagers in person, and was just the right, I think, um, co-pilot for this operation uh, because she had so much insight and passion for how do we figure out how to make the learning really work? How do you how do you crack delivering effective training through constrained channels like interactive SMS or like WhatsApp? Um, 
so that's how it came together. Wow, that's super interesting to hear the fact that IHUB and MLAB played a role in Arifu's early days. I think it just serves as a testament of the necessity of hubs like ours um, in enabling startups or founders to find their networks and just help them build their ventures. So you are part of a cohort of 12 startups that are taking part in the MasterCard Foundation EdTech Fellowship Program. Um, what kind of like prompted you to, you know, take part in this particular initiative? Uh, yeah, so, you know, just to be brutally honest, uh, when you see an opportunity to get grant financing that's non-dilutive, uh, that's an incredible asset uh, and definitely worth taking the time to try to compete for that. Um, the fact that MasterCard was teaming up with iHub to provide, you know, this non-dilutive capital um, in general is going to be helpful for any startup. Uh, in Arifu's specific context, you know, we had uh, found uh, since COVID quite a challenging um, investment landscape. Um, you know, the majority of um, commercial investment that's coming into the continent is going to fintech. Um, the ed tech uh, pool of investment capital is much smaller, um, still fairly risk averse. Uh, so just to be able to weather the storms and position for growth, uh, the timing was particularly good for our business to be able to um, compete for this and ultimately get in the program. And I think beyond that, though, just seeing that it was a, a partnership together with iHub um, so that there would be access to much more types of support um, was going to be uh, compelling. Did you have any other goals or expectations um, when, you, when you signed up for this particular initiative? Yeah, so uh, I think, you know, for, especially for any early stage business, uh, the team's going to be small. Uh, they're going to have different levels of access to resources and, and mentorship and advisory. Uh, uh, for the earliest stage businesses, the, the ability to tap into iHub team and community to get that regularized weekly advisory and support is uh, is pretty critical. It's a huge help, um, so they don't have to go pay for you know consultants and pay for team. Um, we're uh, we've been around a few extra years, so I think for us it was about finding more targeted ways to plug into that value proposition. Um, I definitely loved the access to events, the access to different learning opportunities for specific people across the team, whether it's um, being able you know have our learning designers and instructional designers get um, engaged with some very knowledgeable learning science uh, um, uh, team members at iHub that can support them to you know, really stay sharp, stay at the top of their game uh, so that the educational content that's hosted on our platform that's going out with our partners is, is really top notch. So you mentioned that Arifu operates in multiple countries, um, 11 to be exact. Um, I'm curious to do, um, are there any differences that you have seen in the different uh, jurisdictions that you operated? Um, have these kind of like differences kind of like forced you to change your approach or your product offerings in just, just to cater for these different markets? And what's that experience been like? Uh, yeah, there are there are certainly differences. Uh, we have deployed training um, in eleven countries so far. Uh, so a few of those would be, you know, Kenya, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Liberia, Mal uh, Malawi, um, and others. I think, you know, on on the one hand, when we started to look at expansion in other markets, you you will you will hear some people who who even are you know from those countries. Uh, who might characterize the customer or the user segment in a particular way. And, and you, of course, you need to be listening to that all the time. Um, sometimes I found that it was um, not necessarily helpful or accurate because there, there was a, we, we did certainly find a bit of a bias against kind of, you know, 
um, uh, tried and tested technologies like SMS, where we knew that channel was going to be really important for unlocking learning for the 400 million people on the continent that still are using basic phones and may not yet have access to a smartphone or may not yet be comfortable digitally or financially to, to procure bundles and, and use apps. Um, uh, but we would find, for example, people might say, oh, in this particular country, the, you know, it's not going to work. There's not really a reading culture. For, we would hear that a lot. Uh, and in the data, you know, it, it, while that may be true in certain cases, uh, you know, or sort of as a, as a general sentiment, um, we found for delivering this type of, of content where it's about supporting, let's say, a farmer to solve that problem that maybe is going to wipe out your crop. Or it's about um, supporting that person who can't find a job to have the, the motivation and the confidence to take the first steps to start a business. Like these are these are big problems that that create a lot of you know um, concern within people. And and we've generally found that uh, the uptake and the engagement with that content to learn and the feedback we get when we ask our users how it's going, it's it's actually remarkably consistent across basically every country we've ever deployed. I mean, we will generally see. Um, over two lesson course completion rates, uh, which is which is um, <clears throat> excuse me, which we consider strong. And um, so that has been remarkably similar um, and it and, and also similar depending on which audience we're going to. Um, you know, we would we've done a lot of deployments in refugee camps. Uh, supporting uh, different kinds of learning there. And there can be a bit of a bias as well, we found with organizations working in refugee camps where they might, you know, th there certainly are going to be challenges with literacy. There certainly are going to be challenges with different mix of local languages. Um, but we've also seen that the depth of engagement we get with our learners in those places, in those contexts, actually are, are almost exactly the same um, as when we train, you know, urban youth or we make um, information available to yeah, um, sort of a middle-income family um, in a peri-urban environment. So that's been remarkably similar. As far as differences go, I think that has applied um, more so in the technology configuration, not the core platform, the back end and so on, uh, but because we're delivering interactive learning through messaging channels primarily, uh, that does have differences country to country for various reasons. So, you know, um, you may find that, uh, for example, in Ethiopia, uh, because up until very recently, it's been a one mobile operator game. Um, the uh, and maybe there's other factors that have contributed to this, but uh, the SMS costs were extraordinary. I mean, you know, more than ten times what you would pay for delivering an SMS in in Kenya, and so that really changed the economics in not in a helpful way, actually. And kind of seeing that that that's not going to be a viable channel economically, even if it works technically and functionally. Uh, in Uganda, uh, you know, Facebook has been banned, right? So that has a consequence on how you can make use of um, Facebook Messenger, for example, which would be otherwise a viable channel in Nigeria. Um, and so I think it's just, yeah, maybe at that level, we start to see differences that are really important to capture and take into account as we, we shape the right learning solutions for our partners. That's so interesting to hear the fact that there are more similarities than there are differences um, in the different regions that you operate in. And in the few instances where there are differences, um, the issue is you know, how do you contextualize your product, um, your solutions without necessarily detracting from your key value proposition? And I think that's a very commendable way of you know, um, looking at, at you know, operating in different regions. 
So currently, there's a lot of buzz around um, AI and how tools like ChatGPT are already changing um, student and learners' um, experiences, both in the classroom and out of the classroom. Um, what are your thoughts around this? And again, um, from your own perspective, what does the future of uh, edtech look like, especially in the context of AI? So, you know, any, I think anybody that has taken time to use tools like ChatGPT 3, 3.54 has you know, come away with this whoa kind of moment where they realize that the technology is powerful in a way that maybe caught them off guard. Um, sure, that's not the case for everybody, but you know that was personally my experience, even, and, and I've been in the field for some time. Um, it, you know, and 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 it's going, and it is changing quickly, and it will advance very rapidly. And while there's um, risks and concerns to be managed, uh, there is certainly a lot of room for optimism and um, upside as we look at generative content. Uh, to support the um, availability and the accessibility of really important information and training opportunities for uh, all ages of people everywhere in the world, uh, not just this region. And so, you know, wholeheartedly, I would say at some point, you know, we will have AI teachers that are like the best teacher you ever had, but they know, but they have PhDs in every subject. You know, and they know you and how you learn and what motivates you and can encourage and push you in a way that uh, helps you become your best if you put the effort back into it. Uh, I don't think that's very far away at this point. It's not now, but but it's it's um, in years uh, or you know a few couple decades um, that that might get dated that comment. So, um, you know, <laughs> but but. There's a lot of hype around generative AI and its application in ad tech, and I think it's well-founded. Now, um, should we rush out the door and start putting these tools directly in the hands of, of children and of any, any individual? No, um, we need to be a bit more cautious and a bit more thoughtful about that and working with technology providers and working with um, uh, regulation um, uh, creators and, and lawmakers and so on uh, to make sure that we're navigating the downside correctly as we pursue the upside of this kind of technology. Uh, you know, for us, I mentioned this a bit earlier, but our our particular use case we see a lot of value in in the immediate term is, um, you know, we, we, we don't want to jump ahead and get uh, generative AI. Oh, you, you can go to ChatGPT and you can ask it like, okay, I'm a farmer in, you know, rural Nigeria and I grow cassava. What, what do I need to know? And it will actually produce a, a pretty useful response that is nice and concise, often very accurate, uh, but it's not accurate enough. It's not always accurate. Sometimes it will hallucinate responses. Uh, and so that's dangerous because if you have a situation where, where it's a farmer or um, or maybe it's a student saying, what do I need to know to pass this test? Or it's a mother who's asking about how to, you know, fix the the, the sickness that their child has. Like, you can't get that wrong. Mm -hmm. Or you want to do everything possible to avoid getting that wrong, because that can actually be life or death. Uh, and so let's not be cavalier in trying to go full force with technology and AI innovation to the ex at the expense of mm -hmm. quality. Um, and in particular, quality of, of education in the, in the context of ed tech. So, um, but like 
for now, uh, there is a huge opportunity to, uh, like many other industries where there, this is happening globally, um, the kind of AI as a co-pilot model is very current, very meaningful. So whether it's, um, you know, we're seeing AI as a support to doctors to more, you know, so the doctor can contextualize the information it gets from the AI, but the AI is going to be much more powerful at quickly going through all the available literature to summarize what's important. So that partnership that takes advantage of the skill set of the AI tools and the skill set of the human being who is making decisions in the real world to put that to effect um, is a very compelling one and, and one that I think we're going to see a lot of upside around. And in our case for EdTech, we have a lot of knowledgeable people with information to share to others. How can, um, whether they're a subject matter expert like an agronomist, uh, you know, it, you have to know a huge amount to be um, effective as a smallholder farmer. Um, how can we power up that agronomist to get the best access to information, knowing that they are going to be able to critically assess the efficacy, the truthfulness of the data that they're seeing. And hopefully, you know, we work together to build tools that make that um, easier to detect and determine before that information is put into action in the real world. Uh, so, so that would be my sense of the next few years. Um, as we work towards the longer path where we're not just trying to replace teachers, we're not trying to replace teachers uh, with AI, but the reality is that most people do not have access to tertiary education and uh, and there are certainly not enough people who have access to really effective quality primary and secondary education. And so um, how do we start to, where it's not available um, by humans and can't be funded to be available, uh, how can we start to make this technology useful um, to make sure that everybody is supported with this like best friend in your pocket who happens to be extremely knowledgeable and interested in your own well-being? Great. Um, I like the fact that um, these AI tools can be used to deliver bespoke learning experiences um, for individuals and how educators and teachers um, at large can you know, um, see these AI tools as complementary teaching aids um, and not um, you know, tools that are going to like, you know, replace them um, wholeheartedly. Um, so yeah, thanks for, um, for sharing that. Yeah, sorry, even one I've just thought about, I mean, might as well get it out there, but, but another application would just be around the accessibility of it. Mm. We have so much educational content and resources out there in languages like English and French, uh, even Swahili, but how do we make sure that the that the translation of those mm. educational resources is taking place? For human beings to sit down and do that, it often just does not make economic sense, and that's sure. why we often don't have those resources available. But um, to be able to uh, localize content, I mean, there's 7,000 actively spoken languages globally, right? But, mm. but there's only yeah, I don't know, maybe a few dozen in any meaningful sense on the internet. So there's a huge opportunity for AI tools to support that um, uh, localization of available educational content and, and resources too, which is important. Yeah, I'd never really thought about how you know um, these tools can actually be used to actually democratize access to education. Um, again, so thanks for taking a moment to just share that bit. Um, yeah, really appreciate that. Now, as we try to build this conversation to a close, um, what's next for Arifu? Um, what does the future look like uh, for your organization beyond the MasterCard Foundation EdTech Fellowship Program? So there's this six months, then there's this 12-month uh, additional um, support program uh, that will go on through 2024. Uh, within the course of this year, we'll be launching up this uh, self-serve SaaS LMS that allows organizations to really uh, make it really easy for them to deliver and generate training that's going to go out through mobile and that's going to make the most out of their chatbot investments and their mobile uh, messaging investments with their customers, with the small businesses and retailers and even employees in their businesses. 
so next year, you know, post the intensive part of the program, uh, what we're looking to is hard launching that, uh, taking it to scale. Um, we've just fortunately uh, closed a major new partnership, uh, which we'll be announcing soon, but it has scope to get training and education out to 250,000 women across three countries in Eastern and Western Africa, um, focusing on business skills, focusing on um, employment skills, and supporting them in their uh, journeys to increase their profit and their income. Uh, so that's going to be a big part of our focus, uh, powering that up with additional innovations. Um, in particular, there's two that we'll be driving um, that we think could be a big deal within the EdTech ecosystem uh, locally and uh, globally, ultimately. Uh, number one, what we're doing is, of course, there's a lot of enthusiasm about AI tools like Chatbot, MidJourney. And we've got an active line of R&D focusing on how do we um, put those to great effect uh, by plugging them into a platform where learning designers, instructional designers, subject matter experts, or even um, you know, product owners within any organization can uh, make effective use of those tools with highly engineered prompts, for example, that they can use to um, instantly generate a very effective educational training and content um, or to summarize existing trusted resources so that uh, we're using AI not to directly provide generative content to the end user. I think it's still too risky to be doing that because of the, the current state of play with these AI tools um, and, and the, the lack of accuracy. But uh, we see a huge opportunity for getting those tools in the hands of knowledgeable experts who can then um, you know, kind of vet and quality control that content before it gets out to the final audiences. So that's an area that um, we've got active uh, R&D going on and are looking forward to, to um, launching that kind of a product uh, early next year. Um, as well as uh, innovation around the business model side. Um, I know that's been something that's been a big discussion point across the cohort. Uh, how do we make sure that uh, EdTech is making economic sense in order to justify scalability? Uh, Arifu has had a B2B approach. That's worked pretty well, uh, but we see a big opportunity on B2C and being able to activate the um, capability for our customers to deliver uh, training programs that come with paid certification uh, allowing learners to have the chance to uh, pay something to recoup the costs and drive profit back to the organizations, whether they be banks, whether they be mobile operators, make sure that this makes financial sense for them to deliver training education at scale. Cool. And with that, I think we have come to the end of the conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Craig, for taking the time to share your journey, your experiences um, with us and our audience. Um, again, we, we've learned a lot. And um, just to hear about the work that you guys are doing um, under Arifu, um, just filled me with so much hope um, and inspiration that, that I can't wait to see what you guys uh, build for the future. Um, yeah, so... Um, as we wrap up, um, where can our listeners find more about um, Arifu and the work that you do? Uh, Arifu.com, A-R-I-F-U.com, uh, or uh, send me an email, Craig at Arifu.com. Cool. C-R-A-I-G, not G-R-A-I-G, which is common. Thanks. Um, and with that, I think we'll have come to the end of the episode. Um, yeah, that's been it for this Connect. I've been your host, William Chisoni, Community Manager at iHub. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye.